Morning, guys. Well, if you haven't already, let me invite you to grab your Bible, open to the Gospel according to Luke. We're going to be looking at chapter 11, the friend, the friend our passage just read. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> the passage our friend just read. Uh, before we get into uh, the passage this morning, I wanted to let you know that because we're in a new space, we got our soundboard that we can use again. We will be posting the audio files of our sermons to our website. So you can find on our website under, you go to mountainchurch.org, under resources, you can find the sermon audio files. If you're an iPhone user, you can also find our sermons on the Apple Podcast app. So those will be uploaded each week if you'd like. Secondly, I wanted to let you know that uh, we're going to have a combined Good Friday service this year, and I am super excited about it. Lord willing, we're going to have seven churches gathered to celebrate and remember the Lord's death on Good Friday. It's going to be 415, April 15th, Midway Covenant, which is just around the corner here. You, you go out on 222nd, you take a right, and it's right there on the left. It's going to be at 7 p.m., Unfortunately, there's not going to be child care, uh, but you're welcome to bring your kids. As we were uh, deciding and praying about uh, the service of Hope Church, which is formerly First Baptist Des Moines, they're uh, actually in the process of replanting. They're going to launch March 27th. Really excited for them. Uh, they're going to be leading the worship. They're going to be leading music through worship. And uh, the, I guess the straw fell to me for preaching. <laughs> so I'll be preaching the message. Uh, excited about that. We're looking at the fact of what does Jesus mean when he says it's finished on Good Friday. So I'm really excited about that. Seven churches. Uh, it's going to be Des Moines Gospel Chapel, Midway Covenant, Resurrection Lutheran Church, Normandy Christian Church, Jesus Christ Salt and Light, and Hope Church and Us. So if you guys can be there, set it on your calendars right now. I'm really excited about this. We did this a couple years ago, and it was awesome, and I expect it to be a great um, Patrick, the pastor at Hope Church, has, has said if, if there's anyone in the church who wants to form like an all-church choir, so essentially what that means is they're going to be leading, but if you'd like to be on stage and kind of provide background vocals or sing along with them, uh, <coughs> jump on the stage, Christian. I'm going to come up and sing. Uh, so that, that's, an, that's an option. I think, Sydney, I don't know if you said you were would, but uh, that would be great. Amelia, I wanted to talk with Amelia. Ben, Phil hear your vocals up there. Nathan, bring in the baritone. <laughs> really looking forward to this and how churches are united together around the death of Jesus. So with that being said, let's transition to the text. Luke chapter 11. This morning, looking at verses 1 through 13, right? We just finished up our study through the gospel of John. I'm going to look at this big theme of written for belief. We, we were looking at John's kind of purpose statement. He says, all of these have, I, writ, I wrote these, these signs are recorded that you might believe and, he says, believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may find life in his name. And next week, we're actually going to be jumping into a new study through Colossians. <laughs> I'm jacked about Colossians. Colossians is probably one of the most Christ-centered, Christ-centric epistles in the New Testament. So we're going to look at the the centrality of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. I'm excited about it. Uh, but so in, in the meantime, we have this week now of how does, you know, Paul, Paul writes in the letter of Colossians, devote yourself to prayer. 
And we had just come out of the gospel according to John, which is written about belief, that we might believe, you know, believe the gospel, find life in the gospel. So I wanted to explore this topic of how does the gospel affect how we pray? Well, we've talked about before in the life of our church, uh, you know, our, our beliefs and value of singing, of preaching. What about prayer? So I want to talk about prayer, prayer today. And, uh, you know, from time to time throughout our preaching calendar, we'll have one-off sermons where we're not through a study. And I don't know if prayer has been emphasized in the life of our church like it should. I, if we started over, I wish we would have done that more. But let's look at how does the gospel influence how we pray, because we are a church that seeks to have the gospel at the center. We want it to be functional, central to the life of our church. We want, we want to sing the gospel, right? We want to preach the gospel through all of scripture. We want to remember the gospel as we come to the table and remember Christ's body broken and his blood shed for us. We want sermons that are gospel-centered in the sense of you're coming to the text, you're coming to hear the gospel, and you're not simply hearing a message. Here's what the Bible says, now do it. What is wrong with you people, right? This is what the Bible says, it's very clearly taught, go do it. That it misses the heart of what motivates us. And we believe that our hearts are transformed and changed as we hear the gospel of grace preached to us. We are shaped by the gospel of grace. It kind of comes from this key verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul writes, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So my goal in preaching, instead, I, I hope to be practical, but my goal in preaching is not necessarily to give you three things to do each week. My goal is to lead you to worship Jesus, to see the glory of Jesus, to delight in the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, and be transformed that it affects the way you go out and live. Does that make sense? I found this to be preaching that, that's transformative. As I've heard preachers who preach like this, uh, and I want to grow as a preacher of, of the gospel of, of grace. In other words, we want the gospel to frame how we listen to and understand and obey the scriptures. We don't want to read, listen, and understand and obey that God may love us. We want to read, understand, obey, and apply because we are loved. Amen? So this morning, I want to explore how does Christian prayer, how, how is it shaped, affected, molded, transformed by the gospel? You guys with me? So how many in here have heard a sermon on prayer? If you've been in the church a year or so, you probably have heard a sermon on prayer. How many have heard, it's probably a good idea for Christians to pray? <laughs> How many have heard a pastor say, you should pray? <laughs> I've essentially, I've heard, and I, you know, forgive me, Father, I think I've preached sermons that were essentially the outline is, here's a Bible verse on prayer. Here's some sort of saint, have this inspirational quote on prayer. Now, why can't you guys pray more? Here's what godly leaders have to say. Here's what the scriptures say. Now do it. Pray. I think there's good intentions, but again, I want to look at what is, what is the heart and how can Jesus, you know, as the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. How does Jesus inform them? How does he talk about prayer? And how, what can we learn from how Jesus talks about that? Right? All throughout the, the Bible, there's commands, there's promises, there's examples of prayer. Maybe you've heard 2 Chronicles 7.14. Anyone know this one? 
Now you know it because you're looking at the screens, right? <laughs> if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Right? We have prayers from Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Elisha, Judges, Ezra, Nehemiah, Job, the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, right? You could, there's so many prayers in the Old Testament. You flip to the New Testament and Jesus says this, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, Jesus is assuming we're going to pray, right? You hear the apostle Paul, Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How about this one? 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop praying. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We've heard maybe inspiring quotes from church leaders throughout church history, early church fathers. Clement of Rome, anyone know him? Ignatius? Polycarp? Tertullian? How about Augustine? Heard his name? In the 400s, he says this, what can be more excellent than prayer? What is more profitable to our life? What is sweeter to our souls? What more sublime in the course of our whole life than the practice of prayer? Or what about the reformers, 1500s? Martin Luther, anyone hear this quote before? As it is the business of tailors to make clothes and cobblers to mend shoes. We don't really know these two trades anymore, do we? <laughs> our shoes break, we just throw them away. So it is the business of Christians to pray. That's our business as Christians is to pray. How about John Calvin? As faith springs from the gospel, so by faith our hearts are framed to call upon the name of God in prayer. How about the Puritans? John Owen, 1600s. He who prays as he ought will endeavor to live as he prays. Wow, that's well said, isn't it? The Puritans have a way with words. How about John Bunyan? You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. Right? Like a good preacher, he uses those S's. What is that called? Alliteration. Alliteration. Thank you. How about leaders of the Great Awakening in the 1700s? Jonathan Edwards. There is no way that Christians in a private capacity can do much to promote the work of God and advance the kingdom of Christ as by prayer. How about John Wesley? In souls filled with love, the desire to please God is continual prayer. How about the influential pastors and missionaries of the 1800s? Charles Spurgeon. No man can progress in grace if he forsakes prayer. That's a big statement. He says, as the moon influences the tides of the sea, even so does prayer influence the tides of godliness. How about William Carey, an influential missionary, the father of modern missions in India? He says, prayer Secret, fervent, believing prayer lies at the root of all personal godliness. How about D.L. Moody? Every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. What about the leaders in the 1900s? A.W. Tozer. To desire revival and to the same, to neglect personal prayer and devotion is to wish one way and walk another. 
How about Martin Lloyd-Jones? Above all, again, I regard as most important of all, always respond to every impulse to pray. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. So never resist, never postpone, never push it aside because you are busy. Give yourself to it, yield to it, and you will not only find that you have not been wasting time with respect to the matter which you are dealing, but that actually it has helped you greatly in that respect. How about J.I. Packer? People who know their God are above anything else, people who pray. And the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory comes to expression is in their prayers. Right? And I could quote a thousand more. And we hear these inspirational quotes, these promises of quotes, the, the, the reward of prayer. We hear scripture passages and godly men and women call us to pray, yet how many in this room would feel like I am nailing prayer right now? <laughs> I could never pray more than I'm praying right now. And maybe that, would, maybe that would be a sermon. We, we saw Bible passages. We quoted these godly leaders. Let's pray. Amen? Let's go about our weeks. I'd like to take a different approach today. I'd like to look, diff- look differently at just an appeal to action or behavioral change. Simply look deeper than a, a, a call to pray more. I want to look at the heart of prayer, asking this question, how does Jesus' teaching... How does grace, how does his love, how does the gospel affect how we pray? And this is where I'm going with the sermon. I don't think you pray more by having someone tell you to pray more. I think the more that we are gripped by the gospel, the more that we are gripped by the love and the presence and the promises of Jesus, the more the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ, more that's driven deeper into our hearts, we will pray. In other words, I don't think you grow in prayer through trying harder, following the rules better, hearing a convicting or emotional sermon that to pray more. We pray more by being captured by Jesus and our hearts are transformed, our behavior and our feelings, our actions will be changed. Jesus shows us the heart of prayer in the gospel according to Luke chapter 11. It says, and Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say. And we could probably quote this by memory. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive anyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. There's another version of this prayer that's found in Matthew, which is a little bit longer. Luke has a little bit shorter version. which is why there's some of those things like, and deliver deliver us from evil. You know, those things are not in there. I think sometimes we can hear this prayer and, and we can miss the, the way that Jesus is teaching and the profound beauties that are found in this prayer. Right, when I first moved to Des Moines, there are these things that fly over my house called airplanes, and they make a lot of noise. I don't know the exact physics of it. Is it because the wind is whipping so, through, through the, so fast through those turbines? Is it because of the actual the fuel that's being used, like if there was an electric airplane, would it be quieter, like a Prius? That'd be pretty sweet. Maybe we can have, maybe Elon Musk can make some electric planes for us. But I heard every single plane that flew over my house. And it bothered me. I was coming from Louisiana. We heard a train every once in a while. (laughs) Well, we were two hours from the airport. A lot of people in our town had never been on a plane. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, I heard every single airplane. But the longer I lived there, the more I heard the planes go over, I, I kind of got used to it. 
Yeah, and, and people who live you know, in Des Moines or along this corridor here of the, they added that third runway and they're constantly flying over, you kind of get used to it. And I think sometimes we can even do that with the Lord's Prayer. Like we've heard it so many times, we kind of just tune it out, right? We hear our Father and we just run with it. <laughs> it's like our brain checks out and our words just kind of, right? Jesus is highlighting some beautiful truths here. He's saying some profound things about prayer. And in Jesus' time in the ancient world, prayer was viewed as, what is like, what kind of words can I craft here and an elaborate structure I can make here to really sound great? <laughs> like, what is the most grandiose words, these, you know, $3 words, I don't know the exact phrase that people use, but these words that cost a lot of money, like you want to you sound smart, and they'd be long, drawn out, please. <laughs> and Jesus gives a really short prayer here. It's clear, it's simple, it's short. And he's not necessarily giving us a recipe to fall to the T, not necessarily a prescription, but he's giving us here a model, some elements of prayer. He starts with Father. And this was uncommon for the Jews. It was uncommon for them to talk to God as Father. It was unusual. It seemed too personal, too familiar. And Father conveys this idea of loving authority. Disciples of Jesus call out to God as Father, the Father that He's loving, He's kind, He's tender towards us, His kids. And as Father, He has authority, He cares over us, He rules over us, He, he guides us. We believe as Father, He sets the family values. Our Father is the one who disciplines us, He's the one who comforts us. Jesus starts the prayer with Father. This is how we relate to and address God as Father. And then He says this Hallowed be your name. Not hollow. Not a reference to Harry Potter here in the Deathly Hollows. It's hallow. We don't use this word very often anymore. Hallow. We, we apprentice at a church called the Hallows that was trying to capture this idea of revering, honoring God. And con- constantly people would say, I go to the Hollows church. I could just see Andrew, you know, just kind of cringe. It's, it's Hallows. We want to make God's name hallowed, not hollow, right? Hallow, it means set apart, to respect greatly, to venerate. So Jesus is saying, your name, which is an idea of capturing his, his reputation, his glory, your name be honored as holy. When, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray this, they're saying, Father, be glorified. Would your name be honored in my life as holy? Would your name be honored as holy in my community? Would your name be honored as holy in my city? Would your name be honored as holy in the world? It's asking that God's glory would be revealed, that it would be worshiped, that it would be trusted, that God would be treated as God. And so, Father, hallowed be your name. Then he says this, your kingdom come. So God is he's not only Father, he's King. And he has a kingdom, and it's coming, and it's advancing. Jesus is the teaching of disciples that God is not only Father, he's king. And, and he's teaching his disciples that prayer involves reorienting themselves to his kingdom. <laughs> Jesus has many teachings. Even the fact at the end of this passage, he, he just throws in this little kind of, uh, it's just, he's like side comment, but it's really offensive, right? He goes, if you who are evil... <laughs> Yeah, if you who are evil, he just says that, just like a passing comment. Jesus knows our propensity to make our life, our standards, our perspectives, our desires, our wills, our wishes, ultimate. 
So we have this propensity, this desire. We want to put ourselves on this throne and we want to rule and we want things our way and we want people to serve us. And if we don't get our preferences, if we don't get what we want, we rule with wrath and anger that we haven't gotten what we wanted. I'm taking a class now uh, called Typical Problems in Biblical Counseling. And my professor is talking about these, ma- these main problems that you'll experience as a counselor with people. He's talking about depression, lust, anxiety, and anger. And my professor said that anger is, it's a moral judgment against a perceived wrong. So oftentimes he says, we don't have righteous anger because our standards, in other words, what we get angry about is not what God gets angry about. So dinner not being ready, warm on the table, and the house being clean when I come in the house does not make God angry if that doesn't happen, but it can make me angry. And when I don't get what I want, I respond in anger. Jesus knows. He says, this is the root of, this is what we need to pray. We want to reorient our hearts, our desires around the kingdom. We pray that the kingdom come, that his agenda, his advancement, his glory, his will is ultimately good and wise, and much better than our kingdoms, right? Praise the Lord that Jesus doesn't teach us to pray that our kingdoms advance. (laughs) We want to see the kingdom come. We want to see kingdom dynamics, the upside-down values and nature of the kingdom, that success is not greatness and power, but service. That love expands to enemies, that generosity is a value over greed and selfishness. The kingdom is shown when disciples of Jesus live under the lordship of Jesus, under the care of the Father, and under the guidance of the Spirit. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples to pray. Pray that your kingdom, your name, Father, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come. Then verse three, give us each day our daily bread. So we've seen God is Father, He's king, he's provider. Jesus is teaching his disciples that they are dependent upon God for their daily needs. Now, it's a little more difficult for us to consider this when we think about the context of Palestine, first century, the time of Jesus. Because if you had a famine, if they had a drought, that radically affected their quality of life. They were dependent. Jesus might have in mind here that the Lord's feeding of Uh, Israel in the wilderness with manna. And it came to them (laughs) like, hey, make your run to Costco, grab your food that you need for a month, and then store it in your fridge. No, manna came to the Israelites every day. They had one day on the sixth day where they gathered enough for two days, but they weren't supposed to get more than that. It was daily bread they were given. And it was a way in which God was trying to teach his people dependence and humility. And since we are to depend upon him every day, Jesus is teaching us to ask him what we need for daily life. And Jesus doesn't want us to move past the posture of dependence and neediness, right? Give us each day our daily bread, Father. Verse four, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Those indebted to us are those who spiritually are indebted to us, those who have sinned against us. Jesus is saying we are sinners here in need of the forgiveness of sins 
And our forgiving of others reveals our necessarily grasp and understanding of our own forgiveness. R.C. Sproul says it like this, refusing to forgive others reveals a heart that is grossly, that grossly underestimates the gravity of its own sin and needs of God's forgiveness. Right? So we forgive others out of this forgiveness of, of God. And then finally concludes there with, and lead us not into temptation. And so he's father, he's king, he's provider, he's forgiver, and he is the leader. He is the deliverer. He is the protector. This is a prayer that the father would protect the disciples from unfaithfulness. Right? Matthew adds this at the end of this, deliver us from, or excuse me, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, this idea. And this is the model that Jesus lays forth. So this prayer, he's teaching the disciples to pray, means you relate to God as father, you're praying that his kingdom come. You're asking that he provides your daily needs. You're asking for forgiveness as you learn to forgive others. And you're asking that you would keep me from temptation and evil. And then Jesus gives this beautiful parable on the persistence of prayer. This is the point of this parable. They're told to be bold and aggressive in prayer. He says, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say, friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. I have nothing to set before him. <laughs> Who's ever done this? Going to your friend's house at midnight, knock on his door. Wouldn't that be annoying to be inconvenienced like that? Midnight, I'm usually asleep by then. His friends are answering me, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet so he's not going to give him something because he's a friend, but because of his persistence, Jesus says. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives, ask, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. And here's the point of the parable. Jesus is saying, disciples should be persistent in prayer, not because God is unwilling, not because it will bother God, not because God is not kind, willing to give and generous, but precisely because he is. He is a kind, generous, loving father. He is a generous king. He is a wonderful provider. And Jesus says he's going to give this wonderful, astounding gift of his very presence, the Holy Spirit. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Who's ever done this? Hey, dad, can you make me some toast and eggs? Go have that rock. <laughs> How about a scorpion? Then this statement, if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Right, Matthew has this phrase, good gifts. Right? Luke has a little different wording there, the Holy Spirit. The great gift that the Father sends in response to the prayers of his people. This is what we see in the book of Acts. People pray, they receive the Spirit. And some have asked, why does God invite us to pray? Why does he invite us to seek and to know if he already knows what we need? Why do we need to ask? You guys ever wonder that? Why do we pray if God already knows exactly what we need and he loves us? I think our persistent prayers reveal what we really want, don't they? Our prayer reveals what's really in our hearts, 
what we pray about and how we pray reveals what's going on in our hearts. So we don't pray because God needs to hear our prayers. Like God doesn't need us. We pray because we need God and we need to be reminded of it continually. Amen? I heard once that ministry without prayer is arrogance. Right? Parenting without prayer, marriage without prayer, evangelism without prayer. It's arrogance. I heard it also said that prayer is a litmus test to our faith. In other words, you want to know really how mature your faith is? You want to know how strong your faith really is? You want to know really your humility? Look at your prayer life. Because we can, we can kind of fool ourselves and others, can't we, with church participation, with serving, doing things publicly. But when it comes down to our private, personal prayer life, Tim Keller says it like this. To discover the real you, look at what you spend time thinking about when no one is looking, when nothing is forcing you to think about anything in particular. He says, if we give priority to the outer life, our inner life will be dark and scary. We will not know what to do with solitude. We will be deeply uncomfortable with self-examination, and we will have increasingly short attention span for any kind of reflection. Even more seriously, our lives will lack integrity. Outwardly, we will need to protect confidence, spiritual and emotional health, and wholeness, while inwardly, we may be filled with self-doubts, anxieties, self-pity, and old grudges. In other words, you want to know what's really going on in, your, in the inner man, the inner self, the soul? What are you praying about? How are you praying? I think prayer is an act of faith. It's a response to a heart that is trusting in the gospel and trusting in Jesus. If you believe that God is your father, if you believe that God is your king, if you believe that God is the provider of what you need every day, if you believe that God is the forgiver of your sins, if you believe that he is your deliverer, he is the one who is not going to lead you to temptation, if you believe that, not simply a head knowledge, but a full heart, a whole person response of faith, you will pray. It will happen. To grow in prayer is not necessarily to grow in practices, though those are important reading books on prayer, praying with others, that is all very important. But to grow in prayer is to grow into a deeper humility, dependence, to be gripped more daily by grace. Does that make sense? To have the truth of the gospel sink deeper into your heart. To understand that Jesus didn't just teach his disciples to pray like this, he went out and, and accomplished this. So the reason that Jesus can teach his disciples to call God Father is because of what he did on the cross. Because Jesus on the cross gave up his status, his position, and became sin. Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. In other words, Jesus on the cross forsakes his identity and his status and his privilege, his seated position at the right hand of the Father, he comes, he takes the form of a servant, humbles himself by being, being, by being dead, that's not the right word, by humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. And through his death, he took the punishment that sinners like you and me deserved and not only takes our sin upon himself, but gives us his very righteousness, gives us his status that we are adopted and we 
sinners like you and me, we can be called sons and daughters of God. We can talk to God as Father. That's amazing. That's what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. He adopts us. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. He says, your kingdom come. And in demonstrating the power of the kingdom, the upside, value, upside down values of the kingdom through his elevation as king is his being elevated on the cross. His humiliation on the cross. He showed the king of the world, it didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What kind of king dies for his subjects? What kind of king outserves his subjects? Only King Jesus, amen? He's demonstrated that. He's shown that to us. Jesus called himself the bread of life, the one to which if you obtain him, he will provide a kind of satisfaction, a kind of fullness that your soul will never be hungry again. And Jesus denied that he was betrayed. He, he took the disciples and he had bread and he broke it. And he said, take, this is my body that's broken for you. Do this in memory of me. His body was broken that we might be healed, that we might be made whole and reconciled with God. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to our forgiving God because Jesus secured and accomplished our very forgiveness. Jesus took the debt that we owe to God. We were indebted to God and Jesus took our debt. Therefore, we forgive others because the greatest debt that we could have possibly accrued with God has already been taken care of. Has anyone sinned against you more than you sinned against God? You believe this, you experience this, you let this rule in your heart, you won't be bitter. What kind of footing do we have? What kind of reason do we have not to forgive others? This is the root of bitterness, isn't it? I would never do that. My seminary professor, Dr. Robert Jones, says this, the only thing worse than being an abuser, a murderer, or a gossip is being proud that you're not one. That's strong, but it gets us this idea of if we ourselves has this self-righteous or this view of, I could never do that, or, you know, oh, those guys are so horrible for those sins that we do, and we're not honest about our own sins and are real about our own sins with God, we won't be forgiving. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray that God would not lead them into temptation because he himself was led into temptation and proved himself faithful for us. Jesus himself was led into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested by God, and he was proven faithful. He freed us from the bondage of sin to give us the very power to say no to temptation, that we might no longer be enslaved to the shackles and chains that held us in bondage of sin. And this is the heart of the Father towards you now. He says, ask, knock, seek. When you are faced with your prayerlessness, don't merely focus on your behavior. Ask, what am I trusting in? What am I putting my faith in? <laughs> when you realize that you can't change your heart, this posture of humility, this dependence is what leads us to pray. So what I found was what led me to pray. When you think about the love of Jesus, his forgiveness, his body broken for you, his provision of your daily needs, this is the response of a heart that's trusting in Jesus and trusting in the gospel. We pray, Father, you are all I need. Your kingdom come. I've, I've seen, I've experienced my life when I have reigned as king and it has been horrible. 
I've hurt myself. I've hurt others. Your kingdom come, Jesus. You're, you're so much smarter than me. You understand how life works so much better than me. Your kingdom come. Jesus, I need you. I don't know what to do. I, I need your wisdom. I need your strength. I need you to help me love those in my life. I need you to be my provider. I submit myself to your leadership. I'm dependent upon you. Apart from you, I can do nothing, Jesus says. We pray that. We admit, Jesus, apart from you, I can do nothing. Help me to be connected, to abide, to live and operate out of your love. Jesus, I need your help. Help me. I, help me in temptation, Father. Don't lead me into temptation. Deliver me from evil. I, I trust in you. You delivered me from evil. You you secured that salvation, that rescue from bondage and sin on the cross. I needed to do it again and again in my life. Rescue me, Father. Deliver me, Father. That's, what, that's how we pray, amen? Jesus has taught us, church, these glorious promises of who God is for us in Christ. His Father. His disposition, his heart towards you is of a loving Father. His will is ultimate. His kingdom will come. He's asking us to reorient our life around his kingdom. He has already forgiven you in Christ. Therefore, come to him and confess your sins and live out of the forgiveness that he's offered in Christ. He's providing for your needs. Therefore, continue to depend upon him and humble yourself before him. And he will lead you out of temptation and out of evil. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you by your grace cause us to have the eyes of our hearts opened that we might receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you more deeply, that we may know the hope to which we have been called, the riches of your glory, the incomparable power for us who believe. Father, we pray that out of your glorious riches, that we would be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would be rooted and established in love to have the power together with God's people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that we might be filled with the fullness, the measure of all fullness of God. So we pray this to you, Father, that who is you are able to do far more, immeasurably more, than all we seek or imagine according to your power at work within us. So we pray to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. May your name be hallowed. May you be glorified, Father, throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.